So let's let's just see if we can give a practical example of this, and we'll start with a more extreme example. So let's just uh, put in the example of somebody who's addicted to alcohol, for example. So when they become agitated, alcohol becomes the most attractive option for them. When they drink, they're able to change their mood state as a result. Now, let's just say that a person gets to a point in their lives where they realise that going to alcohol uh, might change the state temporarily, but the long-term impact on that person's um, physical, mental and emotional well-being is compromised. They are aware of that. They recognise at some point that they don't want to um, go back to that path, yet there is also a part of them that, that calls to them, that even talks to them, and says, look at what you're missing out on. There is uh, a sense of where the psychological withdrawal comes in. Uh, The the agitation grows even further, which then increases that... um, Uh, that desire to go back to old patterns of behaviour or conditioning um, which, which were there previously and this part's very different isn't it? It's very different because it actually um, accepts all of that without uh, wanting to fix or change it oddly enough um, which again sounds crazy and, and, and paradoxical but what those um, in your example of the alcoholic uh, this compulsive um, cycle that they're trapped in that has a reward um, uh, component to it uh, that, that, that also locks, locks in and, and also has in terms of a withdrawal process uh, the opposite of a, of a reward, a, a big stick and a big pain and a feeling of, uh, of, of enormous yearning and longing for, for the object of addiction again, to, to, to shift that state. So all of this is, is something that we would, we would accept the addict is not doing. Mm. They don't want it. I, I mean, it, um, it, it, they, they perhaps have gone through cycles of re- rehabilitation. Um, they they recognise their life is heavily dysfunctional and perhaps even on a course to um, to extinction, um, but they feel powerless. And um, there is a tremendous power in powerlessness. Yeah. Uh, if you truly open up to the idea that you are no longer responsible mm. for what is arising, um, and this is in many ways self-evident because if you are gripped with a sense that you don't want this, um, as you said earlier, you didn't want that thought to arise this morning that took you out of ease, yet it was, yet it was present. Uh, if we accept that we are not authoring or engineering our thoughts, our physiological functions, our speech, if all of this is simply arising, what happens when we acknowledge that in the deepest possible sense? What happens is a tremendous amount of energy is liberated. And this liberation is the liberation of 
narrative thought running around and trying to fix, mm. but never being able to fix, completely powerless. We've acknowledged that. So once we redirect, open up that bandwidth that is consumed with self-criticism, with desire for things to be another way, what happens? Well, something remarkable happens because there's an appreciation at some level which can, be, which can grow and grow that you are not what's arisen on stage. You're not the addiction. You're not the, you're, you're not the drinker. You're not the whatever the definition of suffering is. That's not you. The most extreme representation of this I could give is, is if I suddenly said to you uh, that I am responsible not simply for everything you do, but I'm authoring everything that you do, move, say, think. I'm doing it. Uh, that would seem extraordinarily crazy. But that is in fact what we think we're doing to ourselves in an equally extraordinary and crazy way. I really like that analogy, by the way. And I think it's just important to the people listening to this is we've used um, alcohol and we'd put that into a high level addiction, um, just like we'd put in um, a drug addiction. but. This, this level of addiction, we're also talking about low levels of, of addiction, um, which are oftentimes unacknowledged um, in our lives. Uh, the one, you know, one of the, the most common ones which is starting to become more recognised is our addiction to technology. And, uh, you know, science is showing us uh, data on this that uh, people who would consider themselves addicted to their mobile phone... Um, when they are put in an experimental um, condition where they are unable to answer their phone, um, there's an increase in their anxiety and their agitation. Yeah, so, um, and when I think of addiction too, I think it's, it's important to frame it in terms like that uh, rather than we think in, in classical addiction of a substance, mm. um, drug, alcohol, um, or perhaps an activity like gambling. But I think that um, many of our behaviours uh, that we take as normal have addictive and compulsive qualities to them because they're oriented, again, always towards the idea that the self either wants something or doesn't want something. In every experience and encounter that we have through our day, there is a judgment being made as to whether this is positive, negative, or, ne or neutral. Uh, and and the, de the degree that we are making that judgment, the skill at which we're doing that is, is, is appallingly low and bad. So again, if we, we had enormously good skills at this, um, there would be an argument that it, it should continue. But what, what we are unconsciously doing is enabling 
cycles that are essentially driven by what gives us either a nice hit of dopamine or a, or a shot of cortisol. You know, I mean, it, it, it's biochemically um, a little closed loop that, again, doesn't simply stop at, at, at objects. It can be behaviours, it can be ways in which we, we um, deal with others socially. All sorts of little low-level compulsions that we take as normal. Getting back onto the alcoholics example, uh, most people in the world, I imagine, would be familiar with the treatment program Alcohol Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, the individuals that attend that, um, when they are um, invited to speak in the group, they'll introduce themselves and say, you know, hello, my name's Jacob and I'm an alcoholic. Now, that's, you know, part of that is an acknowledgement that uh, they're here because they have what they call a disease and uh, a problem with alcohol. But if we're talking about moving back to going into this, a, a deeper question would be, if I'm an alcoholic, who is that I? Exactly. Yeah, that's exact. That 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 is exactly the question. Now, if, if someone is is engaging in behaviours that are causing considerable self harm or harming others, it is important that 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 can be restrained or redirected in order to provide um, enough space for an inquiry to occur. So, uh, it's always worthwhile saying that if if you're suffering from some chronic addiction. Mm or even a psychological issue that is uh, very, very um, obvious and prevalent and causing you enormous suffering, mm -hmm. that um, it's important to clear space before this inquiry is done, not just necessarily dive in and seeing this as a catch-all. However, to your point as to um, considering who the I is, uh, the, the I or the true self, the S, capital S cell, is not considered to be something that is embodied or encased in this, uh, in this meat body that uh, has a particular biochemical predisposition to alcohol now or to a particular drug or a series of behaviours that are forcing them to act in, in ways that are, are, are self-destructive. Um, even from a, a, a harsh materialist perspective, it, it is, I'll use a favourite word, staggering to me that um, in an evolutionary sense we can do so much that can kill us or harm us or harm others, that we can do so much to this mechanism that it becomes dysfunctional, even though its engineering is so fine and complex. Um, you know, it's, it's designed to keep the internal body temperature within such a narrow band and yet we can feed it poison, we can engage in high-risk activities that, that harm it and can kill it in an instant. There seems to be something completely odd about that, and I think that what's odd about it is that we aren't, in fact, authoring it or engineering it in the way that we think that we are.
And so this, this idea, and, and I'm not very familiar, I know you've probably had clients that are alcoholics and that you've gone on a, an addictive journey with, um, but I, I think I remember reading that um, Alcoholics Anonymous have this idea of a higher power or authority that is part of uh, a kind of surrendering process, um, which in our context is um, something that is, is highly relevant, uh, where we, we're stepping back from blaming ourselves and being highly self-critical for our actions in the world and seeing that our actions are arising and conditioned by behaviours that we are not authoring, we're not writing our own scripts in the way that we think we are. And even if you don't have a, a high-level addiction, um, when we start to become awake or more aware, what we will start to notice or perceive is these low-level addictions um, or ways that we have distracted ourselves previously that become very obvious that were before hidden uh, because that's just what everybody else is doing, so it becomes quite normalised. And this can be quite confronting for people because in their conception they never had um, these issues to begin with. Uh... Well, to give you an example of the, te the technology example that I remember reading recently, which is sort of more subtle than the usual ones, but perhaps one we can all relate to, and this was a, uh, a journalist for the New York Times who uh, was uh, writing a piece on the fact that he used to um, love uh, literary journals with dense reviews of books that ran to many pages and many paragraphs. But now he found he could not read them. His concentration simply couldn't hold beyond the first paragraph. And he attributes this to the fact that the way that we engage with the digital world, where we might have a web browser open with a number of tabs and we're flicking between tabs and we're grabbing a piece of information here and there, we no longer can be deeply restful and open to a work in the way that we once did. We're continually agitated and moving into a future state, uh, which is, is, is not now. So. Um, he lamented and mourned the loss of this capacity to enter a form of stillness where you simply allowed a multi-page review of a book in all its complexity to be read and imbibed and enjoyed. And there was also, in, implicit in this, was the sense that there was something lost uh, with the superficial hopping from one thing to the next. Now, I would say that that superficial hopping from one thing to the next is our daily conventional mental experience. And I would, and I would say this is another point that is um, underutilised, um, or sorry, I would say unrecognised, is we are addicted to thought. And thought is either, is either past-oriented or future-oriented, and if we were uh, to monitor how often our thoughts either drift back into the past or the future on a daily basis, I would imagine that if we did it well, it would be hundreds to thousands of times in a day. 
Yes, I've heard some ridiculous numbers that I'm not prepared to commit to record here because they don't make sense to me. Uh, well, I've heard one which said, I'm going to do it, 60,000 thoughts a day. I can't possibly understand where that comes from, but it might be completely nonsense. But nonetheless, I think your, your point is very well made and it leads me to one of our points of entry. Um, I think we covered off in a very oblique and, and, and circuitous way the notion of non-authorship. Uh, of our behaviour, but another point of entry is one that we um, has entered popular culture, and that is the idea of presence or, or being here now, uh, to quote Ram Dass from the, the 60s. And, and this is, this is uh, of course, uh, Eckhart Tolle's power of now and multiple derivations and, and even mindful practice, mindfulness practices and, and, and meditation. People talk about being more present. But I'd like to approach this a little bit more rigorously and um, in a bit more of a hardcore way uh, because if we really appreciate time, again, it's enough to drop us completely out of the world as we know it. Um, and if we think about time, um, the classical um, uh, view that uh, we grow up with is, is the old uh, notion of time's arrow, which is uh, you know, an arrow that moves from the past to the present to the future. We're in this linear forward-moving stream. If we were in a car, we'd be moving down the highway. That's time. Uh, our clocks move forward. They don't move backwards. If they stop, they're considered to be broken. Um, if we think about this idea of time right off the bat, it's not something that uh, makes sense to us in our daily experience. Most of the time, we are not experiencing time at all. Um, if we're not conscious of an event that uh, we must be at or a particular duration, most of the time, we're not conscious of the, part, the passing or passage of time. And if we're particularly engaged in an activity or, 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 or if we're in a peak or flow state, time itself loses any coherence to us in experience. Now, what we can encounter is occasional twinges and agitations in the body that this is boring and when's it going to end and then a thought comes up about what I'm going to be doing next or what I should have done and wasn't to listen to this damn podcast. Um, so we can be aware of a variety of, 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 of things that, that remind us of duration. The point here is that even at the superficial level of, of the idea of linear time, uh, that's not really how we experience our day. It's how we or, or organize and diarize things, but not, not true for our experience. Now, our, as we go a little bit deeper into this and into the more commonly um, uh, articulated spiritual term, we are in a state of presence where all that ever can be, all that has any reality is existing right now as you are listening to these words. Anything that has happened before or will happen in the future is experienced as imagination. It has no other existence than something that's imagined, whether that's a memory being recalled or, or something being projected. Now, 
When we think about present, most people, again, think about it as something fragile and fleeting. You know, it's an instant, it's gone before we even know what it is. But that's completely contrary to our experience. Our actual experience of presence, or what it means to be present, is that there is no point at which present present time breaks apart and becomes past or future. We, we simply don't see a start to this present moment or a point that it stops. The only time that we actually divide time is when the mind comes in and says, well, 10 seconds ago he started this, uh, this uh, sentence or he may say this in the future or I've, I'll, look at, I'll look at a clock. Yeah, or I've been listening to this for two hours. Mm. Exactly. Mm. So our experience of what it means to be in the present or the present moment is actually an experience of eternity, quite practically. If you want to know what eternity is, guess what? You're there right now. There will not be a point at which this present moment ceases to be this present moment. And I'll say this is the, the great challenge for uh, all human beings is, is not being lost in this imagination, imagination of the past or imagination of the future, of staying in the now. And this is the, really that, that sweet spot. And we know that there's been a, you know, a, a rise in... Um, in the popularity of, of mindfulness, for example. And what was uh, really interesting, um, I heard a story about a, a woman who did a six-week mindfulness course and really struggled at the, at the beginning of the course, wondered why she was doing this. And by the end of the course, um, she said that she had felt um, at ease and at peace. Um, and yet at the conclusion of that course, uh, the normal um, demands of the day and of her work and of her life came back into play and she stopped doing the practice and came out of it. And I suppose uh, the effects that she had through engaging in um, in, this, in this ritual or, or routine of, of coming back to the now after this eternal moment was, uh, was disrupted. And this is probably a, a good time now when we're talking um, about how we go into this is that over time, the more that we go back to these um, practices, which can be quite um, individualised. So, for some people, you know, reconnecting to the now will come back to well, who am I, or, or what am I. The more that we attend to this, the more habitual this becomes. The, the more it becomes part of how we interact in in time and space. If we go to the research on, on habits, uh, for example, and a habit uh, being a behaviour that becomes um, normalised and, and effortless and without thought, it's interesting to note that a habit can take, and this is from uh, research in 2011, what that study found is that to form a habit, it can take anywhere from 18 days to 265 days. Depending on what habit an individual is, uh, is, is trying to develop. So if it's a simple habit, for example, let's just say by drinking more water during the day, they might find that uh, that habit of uh, drinking more during the day simply through the routine of making sure they've got a very large drink bottle on their desk throughout the day, over time, they're constantly bringing their drink 
bottle with them. They're filling it up during the day, which means they're starting to drink more water. And it comes to a point where they're just drinking more water without having to think about it. But for more um, complex patterns of behavior, it can take a significant period of, of energy investment uh, to ensure that um, this, uh, this ritual or routine that you're developing starts to just become part of, of what you do. And this is, I suppose, really what we're looking for when we're saying we're going all in is investing our energy into these practices where over time, uh, when we are agitated, rather than getting caught up in the agitation, our immediate reflexive response will be to go to who or what is experiencing this. Without any conscious thought or having to will ourselves into it, the practice that we begin at the beginning, which is going to feel uncomfortable and going to feel strange, suddenly becomes normalised. And the, the value of doing this, again, should be um, put right at, the, at the, the forefront here. And that is that by cultivating and developing different ways of being and seeing the world, the world itself becomes a very different place in which to live. Uh, a very uh, much sweeter, um, benevolent space, uh, free of mental suffering. Um, it's, as, it's as significant and as, as, as perhaps shattering as that. Um, mentioned just before uh, this idea of staying in the now I think that the the key to remember here is is that we can never not be in the now and we should ask ourselves if we can discover this what might it be like uh, how might it change our experience one of the objections to trying to stay in the now uh, might be uh, well I need to be careful about what's coming down the pike. You know, it might be unfavourable. And so I want to think in advance and plan in advance so I can be best prepared. And again, that makes a great deal of sense uh, um, until we see how it is operationalised in our life. Yeah. And, and it's nothing like that at all. I think in, in a business sense, a lot of people would say that if you stop doing that, you'll lose your edge. Yes. So, again, whenever we hear something like this, rather than simply take it for what it's worth on a conceptual level and say it feels or sounds good, we should see whether it holds up in our experience. So we've got a big frontal cortex, and the main purpose of that is a reality simulator. It's designed to look at situations that we're not presently experiencing and decide whether they're favourable or unfavourable. Now, what we tend to do is, is run this on, on overdrive all the time and have it future-focused. But when we look to our experience and see whether it's really simulating futures that we may need to prepare for, either in a positive sense that it's going to be great or a negative sense, 
What we find is it's not really doing that at all. It's simply shooting your head and saying, well, in an hour's time, I've got to make dinner. And then I've got to write a damn email to somebody rather than I've got to solve this problem. That's what it's doing. It's not doing any grand reality simulation that's assisting you to become more evolved and adapting you better to your environment. It's doing a lot of nonsense most of the time. Part of the inquiry um, on this path would be recognising that, that fact right there is when your mind is darting off into the future is, is to saying, well, how good a predictor am I of the future? And I think if we look at this critically, most people would say we're not very good at all, yet this has just become our, our reflex response. Exactly, and, and, uh, and it's, it's even the future that we're predicting is not a future that has any great salience for us anyway. So it's not something that has any real stakes uh, that we're going to be um, uh, uh, needing to, to deal with and, and have some sort of anticipatory information to, to be able to, to handle correctly. Now, if we discover this, um, then what we could ask ourselves is that the deficit we have in operating in this way is that we are continually stuck in the simulation and not in the present. And the simulation itself, the data we get about our, our possible future, actually conditions our present moment. So we act uh, in ways that um, can be uh, anxiety-ridden for outcomes that not simply won't happen, but have no real skin or stakes in the game anyway. They're not significant. You know, whether I, I, I boil the pot or write the email is, is not going to amount to a hill of beans. And the reason I, I can, can know that for certain is that I can remember all those emails I should, should have written or, or did write, and they didn't amount to a hill of beans. So what we can then ask is, what would it be like to live in the present? In other words, live in reality as it is. We're doing it right now. And what it would mean is that that frontal cortex simulator can be taken offline. And when it's taken offline, it stops flooding our mental narrative with nonsense that agitates us, makes us, makes us anxious. And instead, our mind at large, our little whirlpool slows down and, 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 and stuff from the great vast ocean comes in creatively and appropriately. Now that, now going, if this idea of, of this port of entry, which we might call presence, appeals to you, then you can start experimenting right in your day as often as you remember, bringing yourself to this point, this moment, and asking one simple question, checking in and saying, am I okay now? Ask it as many times as you can in your day, and being okay now is, um, is a version of uh, the great sailor Bob Adamson's uh, line, Australian mystic, who had this line where he said, what's wrong with right now unless you think about it? What's wrong with right now unless you think about it? <laughs>